You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 101, Beyond Bravery. Thanks for joining me. As always, before we get started, I want to invite you to join us on Patreon. Not only do you get access to ad-free versions of the regular episodes, you'll also get special bonus content, The Dispatches. The last installment included discussions of the colorful Russian officer and poet Denis Davidov, the birth of modern war journalism, and the most feared regiment in the French army. The dispatches have been a lot of fun for me, and the feedback from listeners has been extremely positive. Even if you don't have a question yourself, patrons are allowed to vote on what questions they would like to see answered. So this gives you guys a chance to really steer the direction of the show yourselves, which I think is interesting. Obviously, the more people participate, the better it is. And of course, joining us on Patreon is the single best way to support the show. So I hope you'll consider signing up. Anyway, we left off last time on the morning of February 8th, 1807. Napoleon and the Grande Armée were in and around the town of Eilau in East Prussia where they had just fought an apocalyptic battle against a coalition army under General Count Levin August von Bennigsen. Europe had seen a lot of fighting since the outbreak of the War of the First Coalition 15 years earlier, but even hardened veterans were horrified by the violence of the Battle of Eilau. Perhaps as many as 55,000 people were killed or wounded in this engagement. If those high estimates are correct, that represents about a third of the soldiers who fought in the battle. And, as Marshal Ney pointed out the morning after, all this death and destruction had not achieved a decisive result. With the coalition forces gone in the night, the French were in control of the battlefield. This enabled Napoleon to claim victory, although there was no denying the fact that the Grande Armée had suffered terribly and failed to achieve its objective. With their hasty withdrawal in the dark, the Russians and Prussians had been forced to leave behind most of their own wounded. The responsibility for caring for tens of thousands of injured men from both sides now fell on the medical corps of the Grande Armée. In the horrible conditions around Eilau, with only a few hundred doctors and mostly amateur support staff, providing even a basic standard of care to these unfortunate men was a massive undertaking. Among the French doctors struggling against this humanitarian disaster was Dominique Jean Larry. We've discussed Larry in past episodes, as well as in the dispatches. He was perhaps the greatest surgeon of the age, and the inventor of many modern medical techniques. Larry was convinced that good nutrition was absolutely vital in recovery from serious injury, a notion that has been more or less confirmed by subsequent medical science. He worried that with the army critically short on food, and now with thousands of coalition prisoners to feed, his patients stood little chance of getting the nutrition they needed to stay alive and allow their bodies to heal. Fortunately, Lurie was a problem solver by nature, and he had an idea. He dispatched his assistants across the battlefield to butcher dead horses. Once enough meat and bones had been gathered, they assembled every pot they could find, and made a kind of crude horse broth. 
Perhaps it's a bit disgusting, but this broth probably saved many lives. Lurie was so impressed by the effect it had on his patients that he wrote very favorably about the consumption of horse meat. Thanks to his considerable reputation, this helped launch a fad for horse meat in the 19th century. And even today, there are places in Europe where it is still consumed, in part thanks to Dr. Lurie and the Battle of Eilau. As I mentioned last episode, Napoleon was downcast. His customary ride across the battlefield had proved impossible because of the density of corpses. The emperor had seen many battlefields, but he was moved to tears by this horrible scene. Later that day, he said to Marshal Soult, quote, Marshal, the Russians have done us great harm, end quote. Soult replied, quote, And we them, our bullets were not made of cotton, end quote. Both men were right, but it does seem that Napoleon was unusually shaken by the scale of the devastation. The official bulletin he wrote after the battle was full of all the usual exaggerations and spin, but was surprisingly frank about the brutality of the combat. The emperor would stay at Eilau for a week, longer than he lingered on almost any battlefield, supervising the care of the wounded firsthand. Back in France, he made no orders for churches to hold masses of thanksgiving, which was customary after a major victory. Napoleon could not bring himself to publicly admit that Eilau was a failure, but his true feelings were clear to anyone who could read between the lines. His men seemed shaken as well. As Napoleon rode through his own units, he was greeted by cheers. This was typical. Usually the cheers were, Long live the Emperor, with maybe a few Long live Francis or Long live Napoleons sprinkled in. But on the day after Eilau, he was greeted instead with cries of, Long live peace. I think they were trying to send their leader a message. He still had their support, but they wanted to remind him of his promise that he was fighting to secure a just peace for France, not for his own ambition. Years later, a French officer named Auguste Petier, who fought at Eilau, would tell a story that I think sheds some light on the mood of the army. On the night after the first day of battle, Petier walked by a group of officers from 4th Corps who were huddled around a campfire discussing the campaign. Petier was shocked to hear one of the officers launch into a diatribe against the emperor. Quote, Are we protecting our own country here, in the snows, in the Polish abyss? End quote. The officer closed by saying that Napoleon's ambition would never be satisfied until he had, quote, engulfed everything, end quote. Petier was even more shocked that none of the man's comrades objected. Perhaps this was just a moment of frustration at the cold, hunger, and general misery they were all feeling on this horrible night. Or, perhaps, doubt really had begun to creep in. Whatever the case, this attitude seems not to have had an effect on the man's fighting spirit. The next day, Petier recognized him as he was being carried off the battlefield grievously wounded. He was covered in bayonet wounds, suggesting he had been right in the thick of the fighting. Whatever doubts that officer may have had about Napoleon and the army's presence in Poland, they don't seem to have affected his willingness to risk his life in terrifying hand-to-hand combat. The men of the Grande Armée would continue to earn their new nickname, the Grumblers, but as of yet, there was no sign of any unwillingness to continue following their emperor, even into incredible hardship and mortal danger. To France's enemies, Eilau and the preceding campaign represented a glimmer of hope. You might be asking yourself, how could that be? Despite the terrible conditions and a strong performance by the coalition forces, Napoleon was still undefeated. But remember, it can sometimes take decades for a consensus to form on who won a major battle, and these opinions are often not unanimous. If you could go back in time to 1807 and ask the Russian generals who fought in this campaign whether Napoleon was still undefeated, they would have told you no. Many of the inconclusive engagements we've discussed over the past few episodes were thought of as victories among the coalition leadership. True, there was obviously still room for improvement, many of these so-called successes were quite ambiguous, 
and many had come against one of the marshals, not against the emperor himself. Still, it seemed the Russians were much closer to a winning formula than anyone who had faced Napoleon since his rise to power seven years earlier. And it should be said that with the benefit of hindsight, this was far from Napoleon's best performance. During this campaign, he seems to have abandoned the principle of keeping his corps within a day's march of each other, which had served the French army so well in the past. He had also struggled to control his marshals, who frequently deviated from their orders, and sometimes even started engagements on their own initiative. For instance, as you might recall, the uncoordinated and very bloody early French attacks on the first day of Eilau were actually ordered by Marshals Soult and Murat, not by Napoleon. As commander-in-chief, Napoleon also bears some of the blame for the supply and logistics problems that plagued the army during this period. Almost all of these issues were caused, or at least exacerbated, by the difficult conditions. But the gods of war do not accept excuses. It was Bonaparte's duty to rise above those difficulties, and he did not do so. And of course, it had been the emperor's decision to take the army out on campaign in this brutal weather, in some of the most difficult terrain in Europe. Napoleon's reputation as an invincible, unstoppable force was still largely intact, but the events of the past few months had left it tarnished. Of course, we shouldn't overstate our case here. To the vast majority of people in Europe, Napoleon was still Napoleon, the greatest military commander in generations, history on horseback. But to those who had special knowledge of these events, statesmen, generals, and senior politicians, the Grande Armée's struggles in Poland were being analyzed for important lessons about the limitations of Napoleon and his army. There is one significant aspect of Eilau that we didn't really cover in the last episode that I'd like to touch on now, the role of the Prussians. We saw how the arrival of the Prussian division probably saved Bennigsen's army from defeat near the end of the second day of battle. During the episode, I referred to this as a miracle. There was a little hyperbole there. I don't think it was actually supernatural intervention that brought the Prussian general Lestock and his division to the battlefield but the real story of their arrival is quite remarkable. Lestock and his men had to effectively march around Marshal Ney and Sixth Corps, all the while fighting skirmishes and rearguard actions to keep the French off their backs. It was a very difficult maneuver, and their opponents had the advantage in numbers, leadership, and experience. And, as we saw many times in the past few episodes, it was almost impossible to move quickly through this terrain during winter. So, for roughly a week before the last day of Eilau, while the main body of the Grande Armée was chasing the Russians and fighting in the Battle of Hof and the first day of Eilau, the Prussians were engaged in this epic march through the Polish forest, skirmishing with Ney and trying to hold their force together. Their conduct in this campaign is singled out for praise by basically every scholar I read in preparation for these last few episodes. Not only was it very impressive that they pulled off this maneuver, it probably made the difference in the battle. I thought about telling this story concurrently with the story of the main body of the Grande Armée and Bennigsen's army that ended at Eilau, but I thought a little uncertainty about the arrival of the Prussians added to the dramatic tension, so ultimately I left it out. One aspect of the Prussian performance at Eilau would have a profound impact on the future of the Prussian army so it's worth discussing in a bit more detail. The Prussian division had an unusual but very effective leadership team. The commander, General Anton Wilhelm von Lestock, was in many ways a stereotypical old guard Prussian general. As a young man, he had fought under Frederick the Great in the Seven Years' War as an officer cadet. By 1807, he was pushing 69 years old, white-haired with a prominent mustache, curled up at both ends exactly how I imagine an old Prussian general of this period. Unlike many of his contemporaries, Lestock didn't really show his age. He was vigorous, quick-witted, and aggressive. This is something I've noticed since I started the show. Generals of this period seem to have aged very differently. 
Some men were competent field commanders well into their 70s, but you can also read accounts of generals in their 60s that make it sound like they had totally lost their minds and were about to keel over at any moment. I guess the rigors of campaign took more of a toll on some than others. Anyway, Lestock was definitely one of the lucky ones. He would serve until he died at age 76. He was paired with a chief of staff, who was seen as one of the brightest rising stars among the young guard of Prussian officers, a man we have discussed in past episodes, Colonel Gerhard von Scharnhorst. Scharnhorst was young enough to be Lestock's son, but the fact that he was considered part of the young guard at age 51 should tell you something about the Prussian officer corps. He was over a decade older than Napoleon, and older than many of the French marshals as well, but still only a colonel and not taken seriously by some of his superiors. Anyway, Lestock and Scharnhorst had very different ideas about how to wage war, but as things turned out, they complemented each other very well. Lestock's aggression and assertive leadership, combined with Scharnhorst's strong grasp of military theory and organizational skills, proved to be a winning formula. Think back to our episodes on the Prussian defeats of the previous autumn. Based on that performance, would you think a Prussian division would have been capable of this complicated, hard-fought maneuver around Ney's flank only a few months later? Unfortunately for the Prussians, the miracle at Eilau would prove to be the last gasp of the old army of Frederick the Great. Once they arrived on the battlefield, Lestock's division immediately went into action against Davout's Third Corps. The French had all the momentum and all the high ground. Lestock succeeded in stopping them, then rolling back their advance, but Prussian casualties had been horrendous. Even with their ranks bolstered by hundreds of Russian stragglers, Lestock's division was devastated. Estimates vary as to how many Prussians were left alive and unhurt at the end of the battle, but whatever their exact number, they were too few to continue operating independently in the field. There were still men fighting in Prussian uniform, but they were all either in garrisons, passive and static, or fighting under Russian command. There was no remaining body of Prussian soldiers of any significant size undertaking independent operations in the field. The army of King Frederick that had astonished Europe a generation earlier was no more. Many Prussians were still resolved to continue the fight, including almost all of the remaining officer corps, King Frederick William and his court, and senior politicians and nobles. But to do so, they would have to rebuild their army almost from scratch. Fortunately for Prussia, with its last dying act, the old army had shown the way forward for whatever would come next. In the summer of 1807, the remains of the Prussian government launched an official inquiry into the defeats of 1806 and 7, aimed at generating proposals for military reform. Both General Lestock and Colonel Scharnhorst would play key roles in this commission, and, in part thanks to their influence, the commission soon settled on their successful collaboration in the Eilau campaign as the model for how a Prussian headquarters would work in the future. I wonder how many of the Prussian soldiers struggling through the Polish forest on the eve of Eilau suspected that they were setting the tone for the next century of German military history. Beyond the purely practical influence of Lestock's extraordinary march, there was also a great psychological or even spiritual significance. In the minds of many, this last sacrifice of the old army had redeemed its honor, lost in the fields of Jena and Auerstedt, and in the months of surrender and retreat that had followed those great defeats. Field Marshal Baron Kolmar van der Goltz was one of the most influential military theorists of the late 19th and early 20th century. He wrote a book on this exact topic, called Jena to Eilau, The Disgrace and Redemption of the Old Prussian Army. In its introduction, he puts it this way, quote, I have always held that it was at Eilau in 1807, and not in the War of Liberation in 1813, that the old army vindicated itself before the tribunal of history. End quote. However, by this point in our story, 
That new Prussian army, which von der Goltz would be a part of, only existed in the minds of its more forward-thinking officers. For now, the remains of the old army struggled on, hoping to hold on to their country's last few outposts. On the other side of the lines, Napoleon was also thinking about reorganization. As we've discussed in past episodes, there were still tens of thousands of French and French-allied troops scattered around central and eastern Germany, maintaining order, keeping an eye on the Habsburgs to the south, and ensuring the flow of money and supplies, both back to Paris and to the front in Poland. However, these units were not part of any larger organization. Now, Napoleon aimed to change that. The historian David Chandler suggests that it probably occurred to Napoleon that if he had suffered a catastrophic defeat at Eilau, and all or most of the Grande Armée had been destroyed, he would have been forced to build a new army out of these troops in Germany, to provide some kind of backstop against the victorious coalition forces, who would presumably be marching west. With no overarching organization uniting all these disparate units and garrisons, that would have been a difficult task, and so Napoleon set about organizing a new army, to be called the Army of Observation in Germany. The emperor also went to work sourcing replacements for depleted units of the Grande Armée. As I mentioned back in episode 99, the men who were slated to be conscripted in 1807 had been called up early. Many of them had now completed their training and were ready to join the ranks. Few of Bonaparte's units had suffered as badly as the infantry of 7th Corps, Marshal Pierre Augereau's command. As you may remember, they had gotten lost in the blizzard and marched right into the concave section of the Russian line, where they were surrounded by the enemy on three sides and right under the sights of the biggest Russian artillery battery. By the end of the second day of fighting, there were only a few thousand of 7th Corps' infantry remaining unwounded and fit for duty down from a paper strength of nearly 20,000. Granted, these losses were not from Eilau alone. Augereau had received few replacements since Jena. But by this point, bringing these units back to full strength would have completely changed their character. With so few veterans left, a renewed 7th Corps would have effectively been composed of fresh recruits, and thus not up to the same standard as the rest of the Grande Armée. And so, the decision was made to disband 7th Corps and redistribute the survivors to other units. The men of 7th Corps had trained at Boulogne in 1803-5, through 5, then helped surround General Mach and fought their way into the Alps in late 1805. In 1806, they had pushed into the Russian right at Jena, putting the enemy to flight and then annihilated General Ruckel's army when he arrived on the battlefield. More recently, in 1807, they had forced their way across the Vakra under enemy fire, and kept going through the rotten Polish winter. Even when they found themselves trapped at Eilau, in a hopeless position, many of the Corps' regiments kept fighting and resisted to the bitter end. The soldiers of 7th Corps had a glorious record. They were proud to say they were Marshal Ogero's men but now there were too few of them left to continue that legacy. The name of 7th Corps of the Grande Armée would pass into the history books. As for Marshal Augereau himself, he was finally granted the sick leave he had requested before Eilau. Even with the conscripts of 1807 and the remains of Augereau's corps distributed among the units of the Grande Armée, Napoleon's forces were still not back up to full strength. All over the empire, garrison commanders scoured their units for trained, experienced French soldiers so they could be reassigned to the emperor's field army. These men were replaced by fresh recruits, mostly drawn from non-French parts of the empire, Poles, Germans, and Italians, and young conscripts from France. Once again, future conscripts would be called up early, this time the class of 1808 a full 18 months before they were scheduled to be inducted into the French military. As we've discussed in past episodes, these types of call-ups were damaging. Every man conscripted in France represented a tiny blow to public opinion. And manpower is not an infinite resource. 
there was a limit to how many people Napoleon could pull away from society and the labor force before France really began suffering. And every time a fresh recruit joined the ranks of the Grande Armée to replace an old veteran, a tiny imperceptible bit of damage was done to the professionalism and culture of the Grande Armée. Napoleon was right. At Eilau, the coalition army had done them great harm. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Most histories of Napoleon's life and career gloss over the period after Eilau, and not without some reason. The Grande Armée was in winter quarters, resting, reorganizing, and treating the wounded, and this time they would stay in winter quarters. The same was true of the Russians. Bennigsen's units also needed time to lick their wounds, and as we've already discussed, the Prussian contingent was effectively destroyed and incapable of any further independent action. However, the war didn't stop just because the two opposing field armies were in winter quarters. In the no-man's land between the two forces, the French light cavalry and the Russian Cossacks carried on a fierce, low-intensity war, ambushing patrols and raiding outposts. The Cossacks had received more reinforcements and replacements, and they were well-suited to this style of warfare. The French horsemen got the worst of this fighting. Napoleon also turned his attention to the few remaining pockets of Prussian territory. These were mostly to the north, along the Baltic coast, in the province of East Prussia, and to the south, along the border with the Habsburg Empire, in the province of Silesia. As I mentioned at the beginning of this war, the Prussians had placed a lot of their forces in static positions, fortresses, and fortified cities. Although their field army was now destroyed, some of these garrisons were quite formidable. The Grande Armée was in no shape to conduct large-scale siege warfare, but many of Napoleon's second-line troops were up to the task. Poles, Italians, and Germans, with some recent conscripts from France, bolstered by a few solid old veterans, to keep the men steady and show them the ropes. The most important of these sieges was about 150 kilometers, or 93 miles, west of Eilau, the East Prussian port city of Danzig, today Gdansk in Poland. This would be a major prize for the French. Danzig was one of the most important trading centers in this part of the world. It had extensive modern port facilities. As the Grande Armée was currently deployed, roughly north to south, through central Poland, facing east, Danzig was behind Napoleon's left flank. As long as the city remained in Prussian hands, there would be the risk of coalition troops landing in the rear of the Grande Armée. Or, if the coalition forces attacked along the coast, as they had a few months earlier, it would be a perfect supply depot and base of operations. 
Napoleon's left flank would not be secure unless he took the city. However, Danzig would be a tough nut to crack. It had a huge garrison of around 16,000 men, equipped with plenty of heavy artillery. They had good fortifications, huge stockpiles of food, ammunition, and equipment, and their British and Russian allies controlled the Baltic Sea, leaving them an open lifeline for supplies and reinforcements. Worse, the Prussians didn't only control the city itself, but had fortified a relatively large pocket of territory in the surrounding countryside. And this was rough terrain. Danzig was surrounded by swamps, rivers, lakes, and hills. To take the city, the French would have to push the Prussians out of those fortified advanced positions, set up siege lines in this punishing terrain, and then pound the Prussians into submission. Meanwhile, the defenders would be supplied from the sea, and there would be the possibility of fresh coalition troops landing along the coast, either in the city itself to bolster the defenders, or outside the perimeter to attack the siege lines from the rear. This would not be a typical siege. There would be a lot more to this mission than simply sitting outside the city and lobbing artillery shells over the walls until the enemy surrendered. For this difficult assignment, Napoleon would look outside the small circle of marshals he had relied upon in the last two campaigns, picking someone we haven't yet talked about on the show, Marshal François-Joseph Lefebvre. Lefebvre was part of the original class of marshals, elevated to the position when Napoleon reinstated the title of marshal in 1804. Lefebvre was yet another case of a talented man who had been able to rise from obscurity thanks to the revolution. He had been a sergeant in the old royal army, and the War of the First Coalition and emigration of the old counter-revolutionary officers had allowed him to rise rapidly through the ranks, from sergeant to commanding an entire brigade within a year. Lefebvre had not had many opportunities to distinguish himself lately. He had been on the battlefield at Jena, but in command of a division of the Imperial Guard, which had remained in reserve for the entire battle. Now, Napoleon made it clear that if he successfully completed this siege, he would be richly rewarded. Quote, Your glory is linked to the taking of Danzig. End quote. As he followed his glory to Danzig, Marshal Lefebvre would bring a new unit with him, 10th Corps. This new corps was a perfect example of the increasingly multinational character of Napoleon's forces. There were two divisions of Poles, led by the commander of the old Polish legions, General Jan Henryk Dombrowski, German troops drawn from almost every corner of the region, and two divisions of Italians, fighting under the banner of Napoleon's Kingdom of Italy. Out of roughly 45,000 men under Lefebvre's command, only about 10,000 were actually recruited from France. They arrived outside the enemy defensive perimeter on March 19, 1807. With their superior numbers, they were able to push the Prussians back and begin shrinking that perimeter, but resistance was fierce, and the terrain was incredibly difficult. This was a painfully slow process. It took nearly two weeks for the French to get close enough to the city to begin setting up their siege lines, but they found the ground was still hard with frost, and they had to wait several more days for it to get warm enough to dig entrenchments. The French bombarded the city, and slowly worked their way closer to the walls, digging concentric lines of trenches, each closer than the last. A noose was slowly closing around Danzig. Soon, the French managed to get artillery close enough to the port that they could bombard approaching enemy ships. Now, the Prussian garrison was truly under siege. The British, Russians, and Swedes assembled a squadron of ships to bring supplies into the city, along with 8,000 Russian infantry. The plan was to land these forces inside Danzig, and then launch an attack on the French lines, breaking the siege. When the squadron arrived outside Danzig, they soon discovered that there were too many French guns near the port to make landing inside the city practical. Instead, they deposited the Russian infantry outside the French siege lines, hoping that they could break through and link up with the garrison. However, the Russians were unable to coordinate with their allies inside the city, 
and, due to the inherent difficulties of landing so many men on a deserted beach with no port facilities, the French had plenty of time to organize defense. This relief attempt was defeated quickly and easily. 1,500 Russians were killed, wounded, or captured, at the cost of just 400 French casualties. Meanwhile, to the south, Napoleon was worried about the progress of the siege. Campaign season had not yet begun. In some parts of Poland, the ground was still frozen. In other places, the spring thaws had begun, but had brought with them the return of the notorious Eastern European mud, which, as we know from past episodes, was almost impossible to fight through. But Napoleon was already planning his next move. He wanted to be back on campaign in a matter of weeks. As was his habit, he hoped to take the offensive against the coalition. If Danzig remained as a thorn in his left flank, it could be a massive complication. The attempt to relieve the city by sea had failed, but there was still the chance that Bennigsen might call his forces out of their winter camps early to make another attempt by land. Napoleon felt he couldn't risk allowing the siege to fail, and so, in early March, he called his own army out of their camps. The exact amount of time they had been in winter quarters varied from unit to unit, but it hadn't been anywhere close to an entire season for any of them. The emperor also ordered another corps north, to Danzig, to help Lefebvre complete his mission as quickly as possible. With these reinforcements, Lefebvre was able to drive the Prussians out of their last few remaining positions beyond the walls of the city. The ring around Danzig was about as tight as it could be, and there were over a hundred heavy siege guns pulverizing the remaining defenses. The Prussians were in a desperate position. Nearly two-thirds of the garrison were now dead, wounded, or too sick to fight. Fortunately for Danzig's defenders, the French were interested in getting this siege over with as quickly as possible, not in inflicting damage on the Prussian military. Napoleon had given Lefebvre permission to offer extremely generous terms of surrender. The Prussians accepted. On May 24th, the remains of the garrison marched out of the city. Per the terms offered by the French, no trophies were taken. The Prussians were allowed to keep their flags and even their weapons. Napoleon didn't care. The honor of the garrison was a small price to pay to finally be rid of this potentially fatal weakness behind his left flank. After the fall of the city, Napoleon wrote a somewhat cryptic letter of congratulations to Marshal Lefebvre. Quote, I am very satisfied with your services, and have already given you proof of this, which you will discover when you read the latest news from Paris, which will leave you in no doubt as to my opinion of you. End quote. Sure enough, when the next shipment of newspapers arrived from home, they were full of stories of the successful conclusion of the siege all of which ended with the announcement that Marshal François Lefebvre had been granted a noble title, Duke of Danzig. Not bad for a sergeant. By late May, the weather in central Poland had changed quite a bit. All the snow and ice that had made campaigning in this area a nightmare four months earlier had melted. The mud, brought on by the thaw, was now mostly burned away by an increasingly hot sun. Quite simply, the weather in this part of the world is punishing at almost every time of year. The bitter cold and raging blizzards of a few months earlier have been replaced by sweltering heat and stifling humidity. In this part of the world, in this season, daytime highs can reach the upper 80s Fahrenheit, or low 30s Celsius, while still being cold enough at night to need a winter coat. Almost every account of this phase of the fighting comments on the brutal heat and humidity, just like almost every account of the last phase of the fighting talks about the horrible cold. Poland was an unforgiving place for armies in the field. With Danzig finally in French hands, and the roads more or less solid, Napoleon was ready to go back on the offensive. All his work finding replacements and reinforcements for the battered Grande Armée had paid massive dividends. He now had a huge force of over 200,000 men at his disposal. Months of planning and reorganization had finally brought the logistics situation under something resembling control, and the emperor was reasonably confident he could actually keep all these men supplied. 
This stifling heat was not ideal, but unlike mud or snow, heat can't stop wagons and artillery, and it would be much easier for the army to live off the land in late spring and summer than it had been in late fall or in the dead of winter. The coming campaign would be much closer to the style of fighting the French were used to. However, Bennigsen and the coalition army had also been reinforced, and they too would benefit from these slightly less punishing conditions. In fact, Bennigsen preempted Napoleon. He too was planning a fresh offensive, and the coalition forces were able to launch theirs first. Bennigsen had far fewer troops at his disposal. In fact, by this point, the French enjoyed a two-to-one advantage in Poland. The coalition forces only numbered about 100,000. However, the French were far less concentrated. Bennigsen hoped that by striking quickly, he could force a battle against one of the isolated corps of the Grande Armée and deal them a defeat before help arrived, hopefully evening the odds for the next round of fighting. To Bennigsen's credit, this is a sound approach for a smaller force facing a bigger but less concentrated enemy. Napoleon himself was fond of this style of offensive, and had used it with great success several times during the First Italian Campaign. However, unlike Napoleon, Bennigsen had settled on a very convoluted plan that involved no fewer than six separate columns, all coordinating their movements with the goal of pinning down and surrounding 6th Corps of the Grande Armée under Marshal Ney, while blocking other French marshals from marching to support. Unfortunately for the Allies, Napoleon had guessed what they were up to, writing, quote, Everything leads me to believe that the enemy is on the move, though it is ridiculous on his part to engage in a general action now that Danzig is taken. End quote. He did have a point. This offensive would have carried a lot more weight and stood a better chance of succeeding if it had been undertaken before the fall of the city. As was typically the case for this type of complicated, multi-pronged attack, the various Russian columns struggled to coordinate their actions. The Russians tried to advance quickly and quietly to fall upon 6th Corps before they had a chance to concentrate and organize themselves. However, they were spotted by Ney's light cavalry, and one of the columns attacked too early, so the French had plenty of warning and began preparing to fight a defensive battle. On the 5th of June, there was somewhat confused and uncoordinated fighting across a wide area of the front, as the coalition forces tried to pin the French down so they could strike the main blow against Ney. In one of these skirmishes, Marshal Bernadotte was shot in the head by a Russian musket. Either the bullet was fired from very far away, or the charge was somehow defective, because, amazingly, Bernadotte was not even very badly injured. The main coalition attack made some progress, but they were disorganized and struggled to build momentum. Their slowness enabled Ney to shuffle around his units as needed, and so, even though 6th Corps was badly outnumbered, they managed to meet the enemy with roughly equal strength. The fighting stopped at nightfall, with no side having a clear advantage. The morning of June 6th saw Ney in a strong position, anchored on a lake. He was still badly outnumbered, but the confined space of the battlefield helped even the odds. The Russians renewed the attack and made some progress, but one of the senior Russian commanders decided to take his column all the way around the lake along Ney's flank. Perhaps he underestimated the size of the lake or overestimated his men's marching speed, because this was a terrible decision effectively taking half the Russian assault force out of the battle for an extended period of time, right when they were beginning to really pressure the French. This reprieve allowed Ney to stabilize his line and organize a fighting retreat over a nearby river. Sixth Corps had escaped. One interesting side note, this was the first taste of battle for a young Russian cavalry trooper named Alexander Sokolov. Sokolov is an interesting figure because he had joined the army under an alias. His real name was Nadezhda Durova, and he was, in fact, a she. We will have more to say about Private Sokolov in the future. Anyway, these somewhat confused events have gone down in history as the Battle of Gutstadt-Deppen. 
It was almost like a battle from the last phase of the campaign in reverse, one side trying to trap the enemy, but finding they lacked the mobility and communications to do so, and throwing their men into a frontal attack against a tough defensive position. But this time, it was the French who got to play the defender. The Russians claimed victory, but they had failed to achieve their objective, and suffered far worse casualties than their enemies. Just shy of 6,000 coalition killed and wounded, compared to about 3,500 French. Although he officially declared the engagement a victory, General Bennigsen exploded with rage at his generals. He didn't blame himself for the failure of his overcomplicated plan, but his subordinates for failing to move fast enough and tipping their hands to the French. It is worth mentioning that Bennigsen was not his usual self. By this stage in the campaign, he was severely ill. We don't know exactly what was wrong with him. Some sources claim it was a fever, without any more specifics. Others claim he had a kidney stone. Whatever it was, it left him frequently bedridden. Apparently, he even lost consciousness when it got particularly bad. Bennigsen still enjoyed the confidence of the Russian emperor, but he would not be at his best in the coming weeks. In response to this offensive, Napoleon had a bright idea. He dispatched messengers with a letter addressed to Marshal Ney, informing him that he didn't have to worry, because French forces were already around Bennigsen's flank, and would soon launch an attack into the enemy rear. This letter was a ruse. There were no French forces anywhere close to the Russian rear. Napoleon's staff gave the letter to two couriers, and instructed them to take a route to Marshal Ney's headquarters that they knew would bring them into contact with Russian patrols. Obviously, the emperor was remembering the last campaign, in which his surprise offensive had been spoiled when a packet of letters and maps containing his entire strategy had been captured by Cossacks. Sure enough, one of the men was captured by Bennigsen's cavalry. The letter found its way to Russian headquarters. This false message, combined with the failure to trap Ney, seemed to have totally killed whatever small degree of momentum had built up behind this offensive. The ailing Bennigsen and his generals decided to fall back, to await Napoleon's counterstroke from a good position. During their time in winter quarters, the Russians had built strong, prepared defenses. Field fortifications like trenches, parapets, and breastworks were something of a specialty of the Russian army. They had a lot of experience fighting against enemies who specialized in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and they knew that a secure firing position could mean the difference between victory and defeat. This would be a new element to the war, because in the previous phase of fighting, the frozen ground had been too hard for any serious field fortifications. Bennigsen decided to await the Grand Armée at the town of Heilsburg, now lidzbark Warminski in Poland. Not only were there extensive field fortifications, there was an old medieval castle that had been incorporated into the defensive line. As Napoleon launched his offensive, both armies were struggling to pin down the exact location and disposition of the enemy. The cavalry of both sides were fighting in fierce skirmishes. The Russian Cossacks seemed to have gotten the better of this combat, but neither side's horsemen were able to penetrate the enemy cavalry screen. As a result, both commanders would be forced to hedge their bets and gas at the other's intentions. Bennigsen's position at Heilsburg was along a major river, the Alla, also known as the Winna in Polish. He didn't know which side of the river Napoleon would attack from, and split his army roughly in half, with a contingent on each bank. This was a risk, but the Russians controlled four different bridges over the Alla, and he was reasonably confident he could move his troops back and forth as needed. As for Napoleon, his plan was by now somewhat familiar. Catch up with the enemy as quickly as possible, pin them down, and try to get between their position and their base of operations at Königsberg thus, hopefully, forcing the coalition army into a major battle on his terms. As the French forces approached the Russian position at Heilsburg, Napoleon still only had a vague idea of the disposition of the enemy, but he felt a climactic engagement was not far off. He wrote in a letter to the wounded Marshal Bernadotte, quote, 
I am still guessing what the enemy intends to do. Everything has the air of an impending massive blow. I am going to try to find the foe and force a major battle to finish him off. End quote. As was often the case, Murat's cavalry were the first to make contact with the enemy, arriving outside Heilsburg early on June 10th, 1807. Murat's troopers brushed aside the Russian rearguard, but soon were charged by a much larger force of Russian cavalry. The flamboyant marshal had no choice but to order a temporary retreat. Murat was an instinctively aggressive commander, and he did not enjoy ordering his men backwards. As soon as he was able to bring up more of his units, he ordered them to charge right back at the Russian horsemen. They had some success, but soon found themselves within firing range of the enemy infantry and artillery, suffered heavy casualties, and were forced to fall back. By now, Murat's temper was up. He ordered charge after charge, throwing his men against the Russians with reckless abandon. As he typically did, Murat himself got right into the thick of the fighting. One horse was killed by grapeshot underneath him. He got up, found another, mounted up, and went right back into the fray. This horse, too, was killed, and again Murat went down. This time, the flamboyant marshal was really in trouble. He was surrounded by a group of Russian dragoons, with none of his own men nearby. He stood up, saber in hand, to face the enemy, alone and dismounted. It seemed like Murat's guardian angel had finally deserted him. But then, a familiar figure galloped onto the scene. It was the Hussar General, Antoine de la Salle, one of the most daring and colorful officers in the Grande Armée, after Murat himself. Together, the two flamboyant generals were able to drive away the Russians. Murat found another mount, and continued leading his troopers from the front. Watching these repeated charges, a French infantry commander, General Savary, remarked, quote, It would be better for us if Murat was less brave and had a little more common sense. End quote. The coalition cavalry performed brilliantly. At one point, the Russian heavy cuirassiers drove off a force of French horsemen more than twice their size. However, the coalition cavalry also suffered heavy casualties, including a large number of senior officers. By now, large numbers of French infantry and artillery had arrived. Murat had been reinforced by the Imperial Guard and the advance units of Marshal Soult's corps. Napoleon usually held the Guard in reserve, but at Heilsburg, the Fusiliers of the Guard, one of the best regiments in the French army, went right into action. The Russians tried to counterattack, but they sent in a regiment of all-Polish cavalry, many of whom would have preferred fighting for the other side. As you might expect, their charge quickly faltered, and they fell back towards their own lines. Few of these men wanted to get themselves killed fighting against their own country's freedom. With the defeat of the Russian cavalry, the full weight of the French attack fell on a single division, led by Prince Piotr Bagration, one of the most capable leaders in the whole army. Bagration staked out a good position behind a stream, and prepared to hold as best he could. The French attacked, led by General Laurent de Gouvion Saint-Cyr, an extremely brave and capable officer who would eventually be made a Marshal of France. Saint-Cyr and his men inflicted horrible casualties on Bagration's division, but they were unable to break them, and were forced to fall back. They attacked again, and once again the fighting was fierce, but the Russians held on. Around 50% of Bagration's division was killed, wounded, or captured in the fighting, but they did their job. Behind them, Bennigsen had rearranged his line, and with that task complete, he ordered Bagration's division to the rear. Speaking of Bennigsen, he was in extremely bad shape. The day was unusually hot and humid, even by the standards of a normal Polish summer. Every account of this battle comments on the fact that officers and soldiers on both sides were struggling with the weather. If the heat was too much for tough, healthy men in their 20s and 30s, you can imagine how badly a gravely ill man in his 60s was suffering. Apparently, Bennigsen lost consciousness several times during the battle and had to be revived by his staff. 
By now, most of Soult's corps, some of Lannes' corps, plus parts of the Imperial Guard, were engaged against roughly half the Russian army, about 50,000 men on each side. Napoleon had arrived on the battlefield and assumed command. Good news for the French, because the early phases of the battle had not seen Marshals Soult and Murat at their best. However, Napoleon still believed he was only facing a rearguard, and so he ordered an aggressive attack. The coalition army was in very good positions, anchored on woods and field fortifications, with the Ala River guarding their left flank. As the men of the Grande Armée prepared for this difficult assault, enemy artillery opened up on them. The French suffered terrible casualties, but most of these men were veterans. They knew their best chance at survival was pressing home the attack as quickly as possible and forcing the enemy gunners to abandon those cannon. Against all odds, they made incredible progress, seizing several Russian strongpoints, including some serious fortifications. However, the coalition forces counterattacked, with Russian infantry and Prussian cavalry. The French were devastated. Several eagle standards were captured. In one area, the Prussian horsemen were able to push the French all the way back beyond their starting positions and charge into the rear. Just like at Eilau, the enemy was dangerously close to the emperor and his entourage. His staff began urging him to move to a safer location, but he kept brushing them off. Finally, General Nicolas Oudinot said, quote, Sire, if you remain exposed to enemy fire, I will order my grenadiers to seize you and lock you inside a caisson. End quote. A caisson is a special cart for carrying artillery munitions. Apparently, Napoleon was annoyed by this impertinent joke, but he finally got the message and moved back towards the rear. By now, it was quite late in the day, but the sun sets stubbornly late in Poland in summertime. Fighting continued well into the evening, but the battlefield had become a complete mess. In some areas, the Allies held the advantage. In other places, the French were still holding on to the progress they had made earlier in the day. Not even darkness stopped the combat. The French tried a night raid on one of the Russian fortifications, but were discovered by the enemy and driven off, suffering heavy casualties. It was nearly midnight before the firing finally died down. Once again, the two opposing armies had fought a bloody draw. Perhaps more than 4,000 men had lost their lives, to no real advantage on either side. Nadezhda Durova, the young Russian woman who had joined the army under an alias, would remember the battle in her memoirs. Quote, The French fought furiously at Heilsburg. Oh, man is horrible in his frenzy. All the qualities of the wild are contained in him. No, this is no longer bravery. I do not know what to call this wild, bestial daring but it is unworthy of being called fearlessness. Even now, I do not see anything frightening in battle, but I see many men as white as sheets. I see them duck when a shell flies overhead, as if they could evade it. Evidently, in these men, fear has more force than reason. I have already seen a great many killed and severely wounded. It is pitiful to watch the latter moaning and crawling over the so-called field of honor. What can mitigate the horror for a position like that for a common soldier or a recruit? For an educated man, it is a completely different matter. The lofty feeling of honor, heroism, devotion to the emperor, and sacred duty to his native land compel him to face death fearlessly, endure suffering courageously, and part with life calmly. End quote. Exact casualty numbers are sketchy, but it seems they were slightly higher for the French, although the Russians had a smaller force, so their casualties were proportionally higher. Neither army had much need or desire to continue the fight, and so the next morning there was a truce. The surgeons and medical assistants of both armies worked side by side, bringing the wounded off the field for treatment. Once again, the day was unseasonably warm, and apparently the smell coming off the battlefield was nauseating. Then, as was their habit, the Russians fell back, once again abandoning positions so many men had died fighting over. 
Not for the first time in this war, Napoleon's marshals had started the battle without him. And, once again, the Grande Armée had gotten a bloody nose, trying to bash its way through tough enemy positions. While the fighting raged at Heilsburg, Marshal Davout and Third Corps were marching on the enemy flank. If the French had simply waited 24 hours, Bennigsen would have been forced to abandon this position without a shot fired. Heilsburg was yet another sloppy battle that probably did not need to be fought. However, Napoleon was not deterred. He would continue chasing Bennigsen. Despite this setback, the Emperor had the mobility and the numbers. He was determined to finally get his decisive battle. But that story will have to wait for next episode. As always, thanks for listening. One last thing, don't forget to check out other shows on our network, like The Ancient World, The Art of Crime, and The History of China.